knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. You know, those are the words of J.I. Packer from his very famous book, uh, Knowing God. So he talks about the importance of knowing God. Friends, do we know God? Do we know God? You know, whether or not we know God is a matter of eternal significance. Why? It's because God is the creator and the giver of life. And to know Him is to have life. But to refuse Him, or to refuse to know Him, is to cut ourselves off from the very source of life. And in fact, this is how Jesus defines what it means to have life. Jesus says in John's Gospel, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To have life is to know God. We were created to know Him. But how do we know Him? How do we know God? Well, the good news is that God has made Himself known. The Exodus is the story of how God has graciously taken the initiative to save a people from slavery. Why? So that we might know Him. You know, through the ten plagues of the judgment of Egypt, through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, through the provision of food and water for Israel in the wilderness, through the giving of His law, as we will hear from in the second half of Exodus, the Lord again and again is showing who He is. He's showing what He's like. He's showing us what He has done. And this really is the purpose of the Exodus. The Lord redeems Israel that He might be known not just to Israel, not just to Egypt, but that He might be known to the nations. You know, he says uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 16, or, or rather, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, you know, that the Lord's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the point of it, that the Lord's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord's goal is for peoples from every language, every race, every culture and country to join in the worship of Him. You know, God, first and foremost, is a missionary. He's a missionary God who delights in making Himself known to His creation. Beloved, if, if knowing God is of utmost importance, then our highest calling as the people of God, as those who know God, is to make Him known. I think Psalm 67 puts this well. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We have been blessed, not simply to enjoy the blessings of God ourselves, but we have been blessed 
to bless others. Just as God redeemed Israel, so He has saved us to make Christ known to peoples of every language, race, country, and culture, so that they too might come and worship the God we worship. So these two themes of knowing God and making God known run through our text for today. You know, the big idea of this chapter is this. The Lord is known through His works and word. And we'll think about this big idea in two points. Number one, the Lord makes Himself known through His works. Number two, the Lord organizes His people to hear His word. So those two points. So let me read first from verses 1 to 12 as we think about how the Lord makes Himself known through His works. Exodus 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The Lord of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You know, after the action-packed epic of the Exodus and the tense drama of Israel's wilderness journey, you know, Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai, uh, the mountain of God, as, as referred to in this passage. So at, the, at, at Mount Sinai, they will worship him and receive his law. You know, after these two big events of the Exodus and the wilderness journey, you know, it's easy to overlook this chapter, Exodus 18. You know, this chapter centers on a conversation between these two men, Moses and Jethro, his father-in-law. You know, at, at first reading, it's a bit of a peculiar chapter, isn't it? You, know, you have these very big events in Exodus that are happening in chapters 1 to 17. Uh, and then when you get to chapter 18, it seems almost anticlimactic. You know, wh why is this private conversation between Moses and his father-in-law here? You know, wh how does it fit in in the storyline of the Exodus? You now, why doesn't Moses, as he writes the book of Exodus, why doesn't he go straight from chapter 17, where they go through the wilderness, arrive at Mount Sinai, and then start with chapter 19, where they receive the law? So why chapter 18? Well, 
Exodus 18 shows how God is fulfilling His missionary purpose. How does it happen? Chapter 18 describes the conversion of a pagan priest to become a worshipper of the Lord. And I think this chapter, chapter 18, tells us that God's purpose in the Exodus is much bigger than just to free Israel from slavery in Egypt. You know, Pharaoh had challenged the Lord way back in Exodus chapter 5, where he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Well, the Exodus is the Lord's reply to Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh in chapter 9, verse 16, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So the, whole, the, the Exodus story is meant to lead to the proclamation of God's glory in all the earth. You know, God has a plan for the whole world. Through Israel's redemption, God is fulfilling His promise to Abraham to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. God reveals His glory that we might know Him. God spreads the fame of His name for the salvation of the nations. I think you see two contrasting responses to the glory of God. You know, in, in chapter 17 that we heard from last week, uh, the Amalekites come against Israel and attack Israel. You know, that's one response to the glory of God, right? The Amalekites are threatened by this new nation and they think maybe if we launch a preemptive strike against them, uh, we, will, we can retain our place as top dog in this region. So, so that's one response to the glory of God, right? to, to resist the glory of God and His people. Jethro, on the other hand, is another example of, of another response to the glory of God. Jethro is an example of someone from the nations who is saved by hearing about what the Lord has done. Instead of resisting the news, he gladly receives it. News of Israel's redemption had reached Jethro. You know, verse 1, it says, Jethro had heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So news travels fast, even in pre-internet days. Uh, Jethro had heard about, but probably he was especially concerned because Moses was his son-in-law. So he was especially concerned with his welfare. And the, the Midianites were distant relatives of the Israelites, but they were never part of God's people. And in fact, if you read on in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges, you read about how there will be conflict between the Midianites and the Israelites. The Midianites did not worship the Lord. Jethro was a priest, but not a priest of the Lord, but a, a pagan priest who served the gods of Midian. You know, had, had Moses spoken to Jethro about the Lord before, I think probably he had. He probably mentioned how the Lord had called him out of the burning bush. And then he asked his father-in-law for permission to return to Egypt. You read that in chapter 4 of Exodus. But it's likely that, uh, despite hearing about the Lord from Moses then, it's likely that Jethro continued to worship idols. You know, maybe when he heard the words of Moses, maybe he was a bit skeptical. Right? Yeah, you're going back to... Egypt, well, okay, good luck to you. So maybe, maybe Jethro was skeptical then. He, maybe he thought the God of Israel was just another tribal deity like the rest of the gods that he worshipped. 
But, but now things are different right? because now the exodus has happened and, and hearing of the exodus may have made Jethro somewhat curious about Israel's God. You know, after all, it's not every day that a world superpower like Egypt is defeated by oppressed slaves. Right? That, that doesn't happen every day. You know, this was headline news in those days. Israel had defeated this massive superpower, Egypt. You know, how, how did that happen? You know, maybe this made Jethro somewhat curious. And perhaps the Lord was different after all from these other tribal deities. You know, perhaps the Lord was distinct from the other gods of the nations. So now there was opportunity for Jethro to hear more. You know, Moses had sent his wife, Zipporah, and two sons to stay with Jethro. You know, I just like all these little domestic details in our text. Uh, perhaps Moses had sent his family to stay with Jethro, maybe during the Exodus, so that they would be kept safe. Uh, I'm not sure when this happened. But anyway, Zipporah and Moses' two sons are staying with Jethro. And the names of Moses' two sons uh, reflect Moses' faith in God's promise to redeem his people. Gershom means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and this speaks of Moses' hope when he lived in Midian that his exile from his people would end. Uh, the name of his younger son, Eliezer, means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Moses understood his time in Midian and, and, the, and the coming exodus to be evidence of how God would save. Right? So the two names of Moses' sons, I think, reflects Moses' own faith in the Lord. And the Lord had told Moses that after leaving Egypt, Israel would worship the Lord on this mountain. Right? He said that to Moses way back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He says that after I deliver you from Egypt, you would come here to this very location to worship me. And sure enough, in Exodus 18, the Lord has kept his word to Moses and Israel. He's brought them to Sinai, the mountain of God. And, and Sinai was not too far from where Jethro lived. So it was a very opportune time for Jethro to bring Moses' family to Sinai. You know, since Moses was in the neighborhood, Jethro came to see him and reunited him with his wife and sons. So thanks to Moses' faith in God, thanks to God's faithfulness to his promises, there is an evangelistic opportunity for Moses to tell Jethro more about the Lord. You know, it can be challenging for us to evangelize, especially family members. I think oftentimes the, the closer the relationship, the more sensitive it can be to speak about the faith. And I think that we can learn two things from Moses' example. And over here, he, he is a faithful example of what it means to speak of the Lord's salvation to others. You know, firstly, show love. I think it's obvious uh, Moses' affection for his father-in-law. You, know, you see in this passage the way he honours his father-in-law by being hospitable. Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. You know, once he heard that his father-in-law was coming, he didn't wait for him to arrive, but he actually took the initiative to go out to meet him along the way. Uh, which is something unusual. Because normally, in those days, you would just wait for the person to come to you, and then you show them hospitality. But Moses goes above and beyond what custom required. He, he goes out 
to, to greet his father-in-law. And, and the greeting is very affectionate. He, he bows down, shows him great honour and reverence. Then he kissed him. I think that's a sign of affection, a sign of love. You know, I don't know what your relationship with your in-laws is like, but Moses clearly loved his father-in-law. And then they asked each other of their welfare, and then they went into the tent. There's clear affection between these two men. You know, Moses was showing humility you know, in the way he went out to meet Jethro. You know, he wasn't coming at Jethro like, I'm better than you because I know the Lord. No, he shows great humility in the way he defers to his father-in-law. I think, what, what, what can we learn from this? I think to show love and to ask God to deepen our affection for our family members. It's not often that, it's not always easy to love our family members. I, I think especially because we know them well and they know us well, you know, it can be challenging to love them. So pray, ask God to, to give us greater affection for our family members, maybe especially, especially those whom we find challenging to love. And you pray that we would persevere in humble, sacrificial love, even if they disagree with us on matters of the faith. You pray that we would persevere in loving them, in showing them honour where honour is due. You continue to honour our parents, be patient with our children. I know some of us are concerned about children who do not walk with the Lord. Be patient with them. Continue to love them Pray for them. You know, care for that unbelieving husband or wife. You know, respect our family members. And I, and I pray that our love for them may help us gain a hearing for the gospel. Whether it's a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a child, a distant relative, you know, may we continue to grow in our affection for our family members. So show love. The second lesson we can learn from Moses you know, is to see how Moses faithfully testifies of the Lord's saving work. Right? Verse 8, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. You know, there are a couple of things we can learn from Moses' testimony. Firstly, how he clearly points to all the Lord had done. You know, Moses doesn't talk about himself. Moses doesn't talk about his great leadership qualities. He doesn't talk about Israel being a wonderful people. No, Moses focuses squarely on what the Lord had done. You know, one of the ways we can equip ourselves for evangelism is by deepening our knowledge of the Lord. This is, why, this is one of the reasons why we want to know God more and more, because we are equipping ourselves to speak of Him. Right? Because if someone asks us more about the Lord, you know, are we able to tell them you know, winsomely, uh, lovingly about who the Lord is and what He's done? You know, so equip ourselves for evangelism by deepening our knowledge of the Lord and His works. You know, Psalm 111 says this, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Right? Do we study the works of the Lord because we delight in them, because we delight in Him? Right? The, the, the more we love God, the more we know God, I think the more we are uh, stirring up our evangelistic fervour. Right? Evangelism is not a programme, right? I mean, it's not to kind of just do things, but, but to stir up evangelism, we, we need a love for the Lord. 
we need to rejoice in our knowledge of Him. And that will make us want to tell others of Him. You know, Moses' testimony is thoroughly God-centered. Right? God is the one who heard the cries of His oppressed people. God is the one who remembered His covenant with Abraham. God is the one who judged Egypt and its idols. God is the one who saved through the blood of the Lamb. God is the one who led His people through the sea. God is the one who provided for His people in the wilderness food and drink, gave them victory over the Amalekites. You know, again and again, Moses is saying to Jethro, uh, we didn't save ourselves. Right? We, we didn't come here on our own merit. We didn't come here on our own strength. It wasn't because I was such a great leader. Again and again, Moses says to Jethro, the Lord has the power to save. That's Moses' testimony to Jethro. The Lord alone has the power to save. Basically, he's saying to Jethro, salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone. We cannot save ourselves. It's a gospel message that he is proclaiming to Jethro. And this same gospel message is applicable to all of us as well, friends. All of us, has, all of us have sinned against God. Instead of glorifying our Creator with our lives, all of us have selfishly lived for ourselves. And because of our rebellion against our Creator, who is holy, we rightfully deserve His judgment against us. But the good news of the Gospel is that the Lord is able to save. The Lord has the power to rescue rebels like us. God who abounds in grace and mercy, who, whose steadfast love to his, prom, to his people never ends, this God has sent His Son, Jesus, to save guilty rebels like us. You know, the, exodus, the Exodus shows us that this God is a Redeemer. He sent His Son. Jesus is the bread of life. You know, just as God fed Israel in the wilderness with manna, Jesus is the bread of life. You know, just as God gave Israel water to drink, Jesus is the spiritual rock that was struck for His people and life-giving water pours out from Him. Like the Passover lamb was killed to turn aside God's judgment, so Jesus died. As a lamb without blemish or spot, He died in the place of sinners. He took the punishment for sin so that we can be cleansed and forgiven if we trust in Him, if we repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating our greatest enemies, not, not a nation like Egypt, but our greatest enemies of sin and death. In Christ, we share in the victory of His resurrection and we receive new life. And Moses shared the good news with his father-in-law. The Lord saves. You know, we have this good news of how the Lord saves through His Son, the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Exodus he has brought about an even greater exodus. We have this good news to share with others. We study the gospel. Why? So that our hearts are stirred up, so that we love Jesus and we love to make Him known because we have affection for Him. and We tell others about Him. Salvation is free, right? The Lord is the one who saves. But following the Lord is costly, you know, you notice how Moses speaks very honestly 
about all the hardship that had come upon Israel in the way. Verse 8. He doesn't leave that out. He talks also about the wilderness part of the journey. And as we heard last week, the Lord leads us through trials to test our hearts, whether we trust Him, whether we obey Him. We will go through trials as God's people. It's a part of what it means to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul strengthened Christians by saying that we enter the kingdom through many trials, many tribulations. Moses doesn't leave out the difficult bits when he speaks to Jethro about how the Lord saves. We shouldn't leave out the difficult bits when we tell others about the gospel. Jesus himself said, this, you know, the way is hard that leads to life. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and then to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, and in that book, there's a famous quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We will go through trials. We will have to die to ourselves, to our conveniences, to our comforts, if we are to follow Jesus, just as Moses speaks to Jethro about the hardships along the way, so we prepare ourselves and we prepare those around us to face hardships along the way. But the cost is worth it. But the cost is worth it. You know, Moses says, the Lord delivered us. The Lord is a deliverer. The Lord is able to redeem and rescue us. He will not let us down. Yes, there will be tribulations and trials, but the Lord will not let us down. That's the good news of the gospel. When when Jethro hears of how God saved Israel from slavery, Jethro praises God. He says in verse 10, blessed, that's that's a word of praise, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Notice how Jethro uses that personal covenantal name of God. The Lord, you know, this is the very name that God had revealed to Moses and Israel. You know, he says in, in chapter 6, I am the Lord. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. You know, isn't it wonderful that now this, this priest of Midian now declares Blessed be the Lord. He, he takes this personal name of God and he, and he speaks God's name. You know, this name reveals God's faithfulness to his promises to save his people. You know, by praising the Lord, Jethro expresses his personal faith in Israel's God. Israel's God is now his God as well. You know, Jethro didn't simply add the Lord to his collection of gods. No, he has come to the clear and certain conviction that the Lord alone is God. Look at verse 11. Now I know. You know wonderful three words, right? Now I know. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. You know, that, that's Jethro's amazing grace moment. You know, I was blind, but now... I see God is making himself known to the nations. Maybe, I think for those of us who know Jesus, I'm sure we can look back 
in our lives and there is a now I know moment, right? Now I know that the gods I had been worshipping were false. Now I know that my life of sin was leading nowhere except to judgment. Now I know that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Now I know His love. Now I know the joy of sins forgiven, of new life. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Praise God for Jethro's testimony. Through the Exodus, through the Exodus, this pagan priest has come to know the Lord. You know, some, some commentators even say that Exodus 18 is the climax of the book of Exodus. I don't know whether I agree that it's, it's that important, but, but I can see where they're coming from, right? You know, the, the whole Exodus story is leading us to this point, the conversion of the nations. That's why God saves Israel, that the nations might come to know Him. You know, we, we mustn't gloss over what's happening in chapter 18. You know, that, that's really the heart of the Exodus. Uh, and indeed, it's the very heart of God. This is the God whom we worship, friend, beloved. The God who loves the nations, the Lord who desires the salvation of men and women, boys and girls from all peoples. And I pray that we would share His heart more and more. And I pray that we would repent of prejudice, discrimination, of a lack of compassion, as, as Sam prayed earlier, in a prayer of confession, and I pray that God will give us His heart, a heart for the salvation of the lost. You know, unlike the Israelites and the Egyptians, Jethro did not see the events of the Exodus. He relied on hearing. He relied on hearing Moses' eyewitness testimony. And you know, that for Jethro is enough. He didn't say to Moses, show me. Rather, he asked Moses, tell me. Tell me, tell me about what has happened. I want to hear. Right? As Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Seeing is not necessarily believing. You, know, you notice how Jethro even stands in sharp contrast to the Israelites. You know, the, the Israelites had seen again and again the signs and wonders done by God, but how did they respond to God? They complained again and again. Jethro did not see, he heard, and he trusted. I think Jethro is a bit of a a rebuke to the Israelites. This pagan priest hears and believes. God has made himself known through his works. And how do we know the works of God? We know his works because these works have been written down in God's Word, so that we might believe. The works of God have been written down so that we might believe. So we know God more and more. We know His works more and more. How? By knowing His Word more and more. Paul reminds us in Romans 10, faith comes by seeing? No. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the Word of Christ because the Word tells us about Christ. You know, joy, worship, and fellowship are all the fruit of conversion. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, verse 9. Now, I'm reminded of the joy that we recently experienced at the recent baptisms, and with Deborah kind of raising her hands 
in triumph. You know, that, that's the kind of joy that I think Jethro had when it comes to know the Lord. Jethro, who once served false gods, now worships the Lord. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. You know, he, he once did that for, for the idols, right? He once offered sacrifices to the idols. Now he offers sacrifices to the true God, to the Lord. You know, beloved, conversion is fundamentally a change in worship. Right? Conversion is not simply, oh, I make some decision, or I walk down the aisle. No, that, that's not conversion. Conversion involves a fundamental change in worship. Now, once we serve sin, now by the mercies of God, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, as our spiritual worship. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That, that's conversion. It's a change in worship. And because it's a fundamental change in worship, we cannot go on living as though our life hasn't changed. Because we are under a new Lord, under a new master. Conversion will, of necessity, produce the fruit of a transformed life. That's conversion. Because there's a change of worship. And conversion also creates a new community and establishes new relationships. Jethro is welcomed into the fellowship of God's people. At the end of verse 12, Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You know, the eating of bread together is a sign of fellowship and unity and oneness. You know, having a meal in the presence of God, it's a sign that Jethro now belongs to God's people. It's a wonderful picture of togetherness. Right? This former outsider has now become an insider by hearing about what the Lord has done and by believing the news of what the Lord has done. You know, the gospel unites us. The gospel allows us to eat together. You know, being a faithful member of a local church, loving other believers is evidence of conversion because God has brought us into His community. In Christ, we have peace with God and peace with one another. You know, if, if you are a child of God, you, you will desire fellowship with, his or her, with, with, uh, with your new spiritual family. That's the fruit of conversion. So the Lord makes Himself known through His works, and in the rest of our time, let's think about how the Lord organizes His people to hear his word. Let me read from verses 13 to 27. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning to evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case, cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know 
the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. In the second half of Exodus 18, the focus turns from Jethro's conversion to Jethro's counsel. So the next day, uh, Jethro watches his son-in-law at work, you know, in an Old Testament equivalent of a meet-the-people session. Uh, Moses judges the people, but, but the people have to queue up the whole day just to have time with Moses. Uh, J- Jethro quickly realizes that this is not right, right? He, he's puzzled by this arrangement. So he asks Moses, you know, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? Now, Moses replies that the people come to him to inquire of God. And as God's prophet, Moses says that he has a crucial role in teaching God's word to God's people, making known to them God's statutes and laws. I think Moses has a point, right? Moses is saying to Jethro that the people of God need to be centered on the word of God. Why? Because we know God through his word, which must guide and govern every aspect of our lives as God's people. Moses has this crucial task. He can't abdicate that responsibility. But the problem is that Moses is doing all this work on his own. He alone is shouldering the burdens of a nation of perhaps two million people. That's a very large constituency. Jethro rightly identifies the issue. He says in verse 17, what you are doing is not good. And then to verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. I think I need to put that sign on my office. The thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. It's a good reminder to myself. Basically, Jethro is saying to Moses, hey, your one-man show is not sustainable. The burden is too much for Moses to bear alone. He will suffer burnout. Burnout was a thing, even in the Old Testament. And the people will be left frustrated and neglected. You know, what's more, you think about this, if if Moses is exhausted and overwhelmed, then who will teach God's word to God's people? You know, that's the heart of the problem. Who will teach God's word to God's people if the prophet is overwhelmed, if he's burnt out? How shall the people know the Lord? if there is no one able to make him known to them. That's why this matters so much. You know, friends, are we trying to do everything ourselves? You know, unlike Michelle Yeoh, we cannot do everything and be everywhere all at once. It's good to serve the Lord faithfully, but are we trying to carry burdens that he has not called us to bear? You know, do we find it hard to ask for help? Now, if so, then we need to ask why. You know, why do we find it hard to ask for help? 
You know, perhaps our self-reliance may reveal pride in our hearts. And remember that God has placed us in a body. We are one member in a body, and the other members of the body help us to do what God wants us to do. We are interdependent. We need help from one another. Whether you're the pastor or whether you're a member in the pew, we, we all need help. You know, it's unwise to think we have a limitless capacity, you know, especially in a country like Singapore where you know, overwork is a bit like a respectable thing. Everyone says, oh, I'm really, really busy. You know. But what they mean is, oh, I actually, you know, overwork's okay. <laughs> it's, it's good to be busy, right? But it's unwise to think that we have a limitless capacity to handle more and more on our own. You know, in the end, we burn ourselves out, we frustrate the people we love, and we harm the work of the gospel. So Jethro po- po- proposes a remedy in verses 19 to 22. You know, it's vital that Moses continues to pray and intercede for God's people. It's also critical that Moses continues to teach the people God's word. Right? Verse 20, you know, make them know the way in which they walk, must walk and what they must do. You know, keep doing that. You know, don't stop doing that. Therefore, in order to enable Moses to do what he needs to do, to pray and to focus on the ministry of the Word, uh, Jethro says, let others step up as well. Moses, you need help. You need, help by re- to, you, need, you need to get help by raising up more leaders. But who should be appointed to this work? Spiritual leaders should be spiritually mature. I think most, Jethro is, is a wonderful example of, of how the Lord's really worked in his heart as well. You know, he may be a new convert, but his advice reflects sound, godly wisdom. You know, Jethro says to Moses that the leaders of God's people shouldn't be chosen according to worldly criteria. Jethro says nothing about their careers, about their educational qualifications, about their wealth, about their status, not even about their seniority. Instead, Jethro says to Moses, focus on these things, their walk with God and their character. That's it. That's the criteria for choosing leaders. No, he says, look, verse 21, look for able men who fear God, who are trustworthy and who hate the bribe. Look for men with integrity. Look for men who love God and his people. Now, these men are to judge the smaller cases, leaving Moses to focus on teaching God's word, making him known, and deciding the major cases. You know, now that Jethro knows the Lord, he seeks the good of God's people. You know, Jethro is not simply giving pragmatic advice. That's not the point. Jethro has Moses and the people of Israel's well-being at heart. But I think even more fundamentally, Jethro understands the centrality of the Word of God in the life of God's people. And nothing must be allowed to compromise the centrality of the Word of God among God's people. Moses shouldn't be overworked to the point that he neglects the ministry of the Word among God's people. You know, Moses shows himself spiritually mature. It's amazing. This new convert shows great spiritual maturity perhaps even more than the Israelites themselves. You know, the Israelites complain when they don't get what they want, but Jethro rather spots a problem and he offers help. He offers 
good ideas about how the people of God can be strengthened. And I pray that that may be our culture here as well. You know, there, there, there are many things that are not working well, I'm sure. You know, if you look around in the church, many things that are neglected, gaps here and there. So I pray that we as a body would really come together as a body and, and strengthen the church together. You know, if, if God's given you a burden for something, you know, talk to the leaders, you know, encourage others to kind of labour with you to, to, to fill some of those gaps, to fill some of those needs. This is why we are together as the body of Christ. It's not just a small group of leaders who bear the load for the whole church, but we together as the body do this for one another. You know, you see how Jethro encourages Moses with God's presence and provision. He says, verse 19, God be with you. Verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. So pray for our elders, pray for our deacons, pray for our ministry leaders, pray for our care group leaders, Without godly biblical leadership, God's people will suffer. Uh, even more crucially, our witness for the gospel will be hindered. You know, ask God to raise up laborers for the harvest. Ask God to raise up more godly leaders to serve among us. Now, be willing to step up yourself and serve so that more share the burden of the work. And be a servant, not a consumer. And may God direct us to serve Him together that we as a church might reap the fruit of peace. Right? Notice how Jethro says, the people will go to their place in peace. Shalom. This is how the peace of God's people comes about, by the body kind of serving together. You know, several, several applications as we move to our conclusion. Godly leaders, number one, godly leaders are essential for the good of God's people. For a church to be healthy, the leaders must be spiritually mature. Number two, biblical leadership is shared. No leader is an island. You know, I, personally, I'm very, very grateful that I serve on a team of fellow elders. You know, we help and encourage one another. We keep one another accountable. We, we pick up uh, where one another left off. Right? We, we, we're helping one another in ministry. It's shared leadership. Number three, a, a biblical leadership structure is vital for the well-being of the church. You know, just as Moses listened to Jethro's wise counsel, we should be careful to organize ourselves, not according to what the world says, but according to what God's Word says. You know, for example, if we read in the New Testament the pattern of churches being led by a plurality of elders assisted by deacons, you know, we should take that seriously. And we should organize ourselves accordingly. God cares about how His people are organized because He cares about the ministry of His Word. Ultimately, godly leadership helps us to know the Lord through His Word. You know, beginning in Exodus 19, the Lord will reveal His law to Israel. He is preparing His people to receive the law. How? By organizing His people so that Moses can focus on the work of revealing God's law to, to God's people. The Lord sets up a leadership structure that will enable Moses to teach God's word. Godly leadership is good for Moses. It's good for the people. It's good for the ministry of God's word. It's good for the gospel. You know, this foreshadows Acts chapter 6, where the church appoints seven men to serve the practical needs 
of God's people so the apostles can focus on the prayer and ministry of the word. In our context, God has provided us with faithful men who serve as elders, faithful men and women who serve us as deacons, and together we share the work of caring for God's people so that God's word remains central to our life together. Now, beloved, this is a wonderful chapter that speaks of knowing God and making Him known. So I want to end just as I began. Do we know the Lord? Do we know the Lord? The Lord is known through His works and through His word. May we grow to know Him more that we might make Him known among the nations for His glory.